And we're looking this month, this month in which we are focused on giving thanks at the grumbling of God's people here in these central chapters of Numbers. The reason we've been in this is because, well, maybe this isn't true for you, but for me, 2020 has been a year which has exposed my selfishness, my tendency to complain, my grumbling heart. The people of God are on the verge of entering the promised land, a land that God himself had said he would go before them, he would go with them, he had guaranteed their entrance into the promised land, and yet, in disbelief, we have seen them, chapter after chapter, turn from God. And so listen as I read, and if you're looking for this, you can find it printed in the the bulletin that was available at the back of the room, you can pull it up on a device or or have your Bible open. I'm going to read the first 19 verses of Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land, They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great. As you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks for your grace and mercy. Lord, that you are honest with us about our need to find you, to follow you, to obey you. Lord, I pray that we would put our trust in you, 
Lord, that in the sin of the people of Israel, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't see this merely as a historical lesson, but that we would understand the truth of what you are applying to our own lives. That we would be willing to be honest about our own complaining, our own grumbling, our own selfishness and sin. And Lord, where there is a lack of faith in us, let us turn and put our trust in Jesus. Lord, you are gracious to us since we come praying in the name of our Savior, Jesus, who is our Christ. Amen. They were running late, so they'd need to make up time along the way. The train heading out of Nashville on July 9th, 1918, either didn't see or completely ignored the warning signals. The Nashville train should have waited for the incoming train from Memphis to pass by them on the double tracks. But running late, they barreled ahead. The historical account continues. The locomotives collided at a big bend in the track near Belmede. They didn't see each other until it was too late. People from miles away heard the crash and just came running. As many as 40,000 people came to see the carnage. The sight was so gruesome that steel-stomached butchers were called in to help with the bloody cleanup. 101 people died in that wreck. America's deadliest train crash. The investigation revealed that all of the warning signals had been working as they should have, but the warnings were ignored. The book of Numbers is a book filled with warnings. The sins of the people and the punishment that they had received should have been warnings to them. The judgment for their grumblings in these chapters should have warned them, but they barreled ahead. They ignored God's warning. And, And the New Testament tells us that's why this section of the Bible is here for us. As a warning, not merely to them, but a warning to us. In in the New Testament, in the letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, a church that itself needed to be warned about their own barreling into sin, the Apostle Paul says that, that, that what was written in the Old Testament, particularly in these times of grumbling and complaining, this was written for us as a warning. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Today, the warning signals have been thrown up for us. The warning signals have been brought to the people of of Israel. Warnings brought by God himself, but, but also by his messengers. Will we heed the warning of God? Because in Numbers 14, we see the sins of the people. Remember what we talked about last week. God had sent 12 men, a representative from each of the tribes, to spy out the land, to to know what their plan would be, because God had already promised it to them. And the spies brought back the report that the land is good, but, but as for the people, well, that's trouble. That's bad news. For they are giants. We cannot defeat them. 
And so in, in Numbers 14, the, look, look at verse 2. The, the people are, are crying. They're weeping. And they, they, they cry out then, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness? They're in such despair that they think death would be better than the moment that I'm in. It, it's an overwhelming despair. So then in verse 3, they, they then they turn their, their despair into blame. They point the blame up at God. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? It's not the first time they've asked this question. A few weeks ago, Mike showed us that in, in chapter 11, this was the same question that they had asked then. Didn't we have it better off back in Egypt? Weren't things better when we were slaves? But here they, they go a step further because verse 4 says that they actually then decide now to choose a leader. Not only are they blaming God for this, but they're going to reject Moses, God's appointed leader, and they're going to say, we're picking somebody new and we're done with this. We're going back to Egypt. See, one commentator says they are looking only through the eyes of their human frailty. And so they felt like they had nowhere to run. Their brokenness exposed. Now, how about you today? Does the frailty you feel in this moment, in, in your life, does it leave you in fear? Does worry dominate our lives? Does anxiety lead us to exhaustion? Or does it lead us to a place of dependence? Does your concern about what will come next force you to say, I, I, I don't know what I could possibly do? Does that lead you to a place where you say, oh, but there is one to whom I can turn? When we are at our end, do we just try to wring out a little bit more self-sufficiency? Or do we fall on Jesus, throw ourselves on God? Because the people here have a, have a remedy. And, and thankfully, they have, a, they have spokesmen who are going to remind them of that remedy. They have the warning that comes from Joshua and Caleb. Remember, those are the two of the 12 men. They were leaders of their tribes sent into the land. They're the names that we remember. They're the names that we apply to our own sons because they are the men who prove themselves faithful. And so when Moses and Aaron fall on their faces because the people have blasphemed against God, they have blamed God for the evil that's taken place in their own hearts. Then Moses and Aaron, the, the, the leader and the high priest, fall on their faces. And so Joshua, verse 6, and Caleb step forward. They, they tear their clothes, a sign of, of mourning, that, that what you're saying, what you're doing is absolutely wrong. And then they remind them of the good report that they had brought. And, and, and you notice that they, if you were here last week, or you can take time later to read through chapters 13 and 14 again, they basically repeat the same phrases, the same language that came from the 10 spies who rejected God. But they say, yeah, the report was absolutely true, but the conclusion was flawed. The, the land is an exceedingly good land, verse 7. And, and it's a land that flows with milk and honey, verse 8. But they reach the conclusion then that because God has promised to give it to us, then it's ours. Verse 8, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. And so they bring the warning of verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred to us. They will sustain us. When we go in, the cities are already built. The, the ovens are already warm. We will be sustained by the Lord. The, the report that you have of, of fortified cities, that's good news for us. The report that, that there are houses already there, 
That, that's true, and that's good for us. Because once the, their protection, the protection of the people of the, the land is removed, once, once they are under the blaring heat of God's judgment, verse 9, then we still have the promise that the Lord is with us. See, the report that was brought back by the, the spies wasn't, wasn't false. The things that they announced about the land were true. It was the conclusion that was evil. Well, then we can't do this. But that was never meant to be the conclusion, can you accomplish this on your own? It was always meant to be, well, remember, this is what the Lord has promised to give to us. And yet here in Numbers 14, what do the people do? Verse 10, they pick up stones. They're going to end this now. Joshua and Caleb must go. And yet look, look at verse 10. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. I mean, this wasn't a fair fight. You have an entire nation positioning themselves against two men. And yet, it wasn't a fair fight because, well, it's two men who are on the side of whom? The Lord. And so it's the Lord himself who steps out and says, I will defend Caleb and Joshua, for they have spoken the truth. They have, they have shown their trust in me. And then we have the, the judgment of God, God's intervention here. The glory of the Lord in, in the face of the people. And then God speaks again to Moses. And these are words of judgment, verse 11. How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? These people have every benefit. Yes, they're living in the wilderness, waiting to go into the promised land, but they have every benefit of God's grace. Right in the middle of their camp is the tabernacle, the place where God comes and meets with them. When they get up to move, there is a visible representation of God's presence among them. The, the pillar of cloud by day, the, the, the pillar of fire by night. God is with them. This is the generation that saw the greatest miracles of the Bible. The parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of Pharaoh's army, the, the freedom that they gained in the Exodus. And yet, in this moment, they are a people who lack faith. They do not believe in the Lord. And so, so the Lord brings to judgment. In verse 12, he says, I'm done with them. I will strike them with the pestilence and I will disinherit them. And he says to Moses, what must have been an, 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 you know, a, a, a promise that he thought, oh, maybe this is a better deal. He says, I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. I mean, that must have been an enticing, an enticing statement. For this people have been nothing but trouble to Moses. At every place where they, were, where they were forced to put their trust in him, they have decided to turn against him. And God offers to start again. God will keep his promise by sending Moses with a new people into the land. But Moses intervenes. Moses intercedes for his people. Moses pleads to the Lord. Look at verse 13. And we see in, in Moses' plea to the Lord, and, and it's not as if Moses is going to tell God something that God had forgotten or God didn't understand. This is, remember, why is this written? Well, 1 Corinthians told us this was written as a warning to the people then and a warning to us. And so Moses' whole interaction here with God is so that you and I will understand what kind of God we are being asked to follow. Because Moses basically has, a, has an argument that, that rests on, on two central premises. 
One is God's reputation among the nations, and then secondly, upon God's character itself. And so, so Moses pleads in verse 13, but then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them. They will tell the inhabitants of the land, they have heard about you, O Lord, that you are in the midst of this people, for you are seen face to face. Your cloud stands over them. You go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. Moses is saying, but God, your promises stand not only for this people who, yes, deserve your judgment, but remember your promises given. Your promises given to Abraham are promises for these nations. And so the nations need to see your greatness and grandeur. You leading these people into the promised land will show forth your greatness, your fame among the nations. But Moses' main argument is, is even more central because he then turns and looks at the very character of God. Look at verse 17. And now, please let the power of the Lord be as great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. See, Moses is quoting God's words back to him. Because this isn't actually the first time God has offered this deal to Moses. If you remember, back in the book of Exodus, now we haven't, we haven't turned there recently, so you would have to maybe have heard this in a Sunday school class. But in the book of, of Exodus, Moses is up on the mountain of the Lord, receiving the commands of the Lord, but he's been gone a while. And so, well, what do the people do? Well, they have Aaron to lead them as the high priest, and so, well, they make an image of God, a golden calf. They begin to worship this calf. They, they turn from God. And God is going to bring judgment. And Moses, in, in Exodus 32, 33, and 34, he intercedes, just as he does in the book of Numbers, pleading on behalf of the people. And then, then what we have in Exodus 34 is, is God. God is, proves his, his faithfulness, his graciousness, his forgiveness. He gives them the, the, the commandments written again. And then we're, we're told in Exodus 34, in verse 5, that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So these are the words of God to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, this is how God has revealed himself to Moses, as the God who forgives sin. And yet both in Exodus 34 and in Numbers 14, we have the reminder that God is a God who will bring justice and judgment. And so even in his mercy, we're told back in Numbers 14 verse 18 that God will by no means clear the guilty, but they will, they will face the consequences of their sin. See, our hope rests not in that we can sort of clean ourselves up, turn ourselves around. That, that's, that's not the argument Moses makes, right? Because one argument that could have worked is, all right, I know this is like our third or fourth or really it's like our 10th chance at getting this right. I mean, like our 10th chance this month at getting this right. But give us, give us one more try 
And God, I'm sure I can get, these people, they can get their act cleaned up. They're, they're going to see the, the seriousness of their sin in this moment. And so let us, get it, let us get ourselves cleaned up. We can atone for our sin. We can make it right. And then we can move forward. That's not the argument he makes. Because if that were, if that were the hope of the people of Israel, or if that is our hope today, that, that, it's, that our standing before God is based on whether or not we can fix things on our own, then we would be hopeless. No, Moses pleads based on the fame of God, his name known among the world. And how is he known? He's known by his character as a God who is a forgiving God. So the reason we can turn to God and ask for forgiveness is not because we deserve it, but because we know God is gracious to us. And so there is, yes, even in Moses' plea, a recognition that, that the people deserve punishment. And so the punishment that comes in the rest of the chapter is that all those that are age 20 and older, all those that have, that, that have shown their unfaithfulness, they will die in this wilderness. We have the immediate death of the 10 spies. Now, I, I told you last week they weren't going to make it past chapter 14, so I've already kind of given that away. But in verse 38, those that brought the evil report, that brought the bad report, those that, that led the people into disobedience, those that, ex, that exposed their faithlessness, they were told in verse 37, they died by plague before the Lord. Of the 12 who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive. And so everyone else, age 20 and older, will die in the land. But, but it's a punishment that fits the crime. Because their, their lack of faith, their disobedience, was crying out, oh, would that we died in this wilderness. They asked for it. They thought following God, dying here in the wilderness would be better than following God. And so God is going to give them the very thing that they asked for at the beginning of the chapter. And, and we see the irony, if, if I were to spend the time to, to read the rest of the chapter, you would see that, that four times God tells them that your dead bodies will be here in this wilderness. You think it'd be better to die here? Well, we can make that happen. They, they, they fear falling by the sword. Well, when they disobey God and now try and go up and take the promised land on their own, even though Moses at the end of the chapter will say, don't go. The punishment is that God is staying here and Moses, the tabernacle, and God himself stay and the army decides, let's, let's still go up. We can do this. And they fall by the sword. They fear for their children and yet God is the only one who will look out for their little ones. The, the language that God uses in bringing the judgment is the very language, the complaint that they brought against God himself. The punishment is a punishment that they deserve. See, because the people, they blamed their circumstances on the failure of God. Remember the question they asked back in verse 3? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? This is God's fault. And I think we too blame God for what has gone wrong in our lives. I mean, philosophically, we, we, we sometimes do this by saying, well, wouldn't a good and all-powerful God, wouldn't he just get rid of everything that's bad? And we, we sort of throw it out as if philosophically, therefore, we can just reject the God of the Bible. Because there's evil in the world, therefore, a good and powerful God must not exist. Well, that's not really a philosophical argument at all. 
because baked into the very argument from the beginning, whether you're talking about it from a Christian perspective or not, has always been the idea that, well, that would be true unless God had a good reason to allow evil, which has always been the argument that Christians have made. But, but I think most of us, we don't actually wrestle with this question as much philosophically as we do personally. Why would God let this happen to me? Where is God in all of the suffering that I see around me? Where is God when the, the phone rings and it's the, the update from the doctor? Where is God when, when the pain that I live with every day it keeps, me, keeps me from getting out of bed? Where is God in all of this? Because this is a much more personal kind of question, and that's the, the very way that people turn it on God. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? God will not keep his promises. God is not good. And yet we see in Moses' response, it's, it's not to blame the character of God, it's actually to throw himself on God and his character. See, the evil in the world is, is my fault and yours. It's the result of our sin, our rebellion. That's clear in Numbers 14, that the people get what they deserve. And yet, when we think, but I don't deserve this. So we're doing the very thing that they were doing. We're, we're dismissing our sin as if it's not a big deal. As if rebellion against the God of the universe, well, it's, it doesn't really matter all that much. And yet we should feel the weight of sin, the horror of our sin, and yet... We can turn to God and, like Moses, cry out to the Lord because he is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is a God who forgives iniquity and transgression. See, the warning of this chapter is a warning of grace. That there is grace, the full and free forgiveness of God available to you today. And for some of us, we think, well, that's not fair. Because other people, they don't deserve God's grace. Well, of course they don't. If they deserved it, then it wouldn't be grace. But but when we we think ourselves higher than other people, then, then we've exposed our own sin, our own selfishness. Because we think, well, I do deserve it. But then I've laid the blame for all that has gone wrong in the world at the very feet of God. See, this passage is meant to be a warning to us. And it's not only the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians that that reminds us of this, but the author of the book of Hebrews points to this section of, of the history of the people of Israel as a reminder that God responds graciously to those who come to him by faith. Now, Hebrews is toward the very back of your Bible, so we're turning from Numbers near the front to the very back of the Bible to, to Hebrews chapter 3. And we're, we're warned about the deceitfulness of sin, about the danger of hardening our hearts in rebellion, just like the people in the book of Numbers. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, we read, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, 
but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now Hebrews chapter 4 continues the argument, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, for they were not united by faith with those who listened. what, What the author of Hebrews is saying is that the warning comes with a message of grace. See, this isn't merely that God, God says you are a sinner and so you deserve punishment the end. The warning actually has built into it the very forgiveness because of the character of God. That God is the one who, who will forgive our sins. See, the good news comes to us today just as it did to the people in the book of Numbers who rebelled. There is good news that if you will throw yourselves upon the grace of God that he will forgive. If you will trust in the Lord, then you belong to him. He is a God who is faithful to his own promises. And what is the good news that we've heard? Well, if you just turn the page back to the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, you get a sense of of what is this good news? It's the good news that that, that while God has spoken in the past in many ways, verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 1, in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. His son is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What is the good news? It's the good news that we long for as we turn toward Christmas, that God sent his son. That God has proven his faithfulness to us. That God, just like, just like Joshua and, and Caleb said, the Lord is with us. Then you and I hear this good news. God is with us. Emmanuel, God is here. The savior of the world. The one who died in our place. Who purified us from sin. Because in the book of Numbers, we have the, the God of grace and mercy. But we also have a God of justice. And in Jesus, we see how the character of God flows to the cross, where Jesus pays the penalty for our sins so that you and I could be purified. Because we get into God's kingdom, not because of our goodness, but because of the greatness of Jesus. He is our great high priest. He is the one who is without sin. He is the one who can sustain us, even in the most difficult of moments. And so as we conclude this series in the book of Numbers, I mean, you can continue to read the book of Numbers. It keeps going on. The people will continue to rebel. They will continue to provoke the Lord, but he will continue to prove himself faithful. But as we finish this series in the book of Numbers, we were challenged to think about the way that our hearts respond in difficulties when we feel like we're in the wilderness. I mean, how will you remember 2020? Is it a year of grumbling or a year of growth? Is it a year of sin or a year of grace. Because when confronted with the difficult circumstances, we can either fall into spiritual apathy or, or lethargy where we just do nothing at all except throw blame at God, or it could be a year of spiritual strength and growth. See, when your sin is exposed, turn to Jesus. When your heart begins to grumble, turn to Jesus in faith. 
Because the warning has come that your sin deserves judgment, but God is a God who is gracious to us. And so when your frustration boils over, turn to Jesus. Don't barrel past the, the warning signs to your own destruction. But in the warnings of grace, put your trust in God because the Lord is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. The Lord forgives iniquity and transgression. And how do we know? Because the Savior has come to bear your sins on the cross. God has proven his love and mercy to us in Jesus. Throw yourselves upon him. Put your trust in Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, we're thankful for your mercy, for your love. Lord, where we, where we feel the, the burning heat of shame for our sin, Lord, I pray that we would not too quickly cast it aside, but that we would acknowledge our sin. We would confess our sin. We would turn from sin to put our trust in Jesus, who is the Savior. Lord, for those who have listened without a knowledge of you, those who will hear us online or on the radio, Lord, that they would turn at this warning sign and put their trust in Jesus, that they would hear these words of grace. Lord, for those of us who, who are followers of Jesus, Lord, let us live lives that are, that are becoming of followers, that we would live lives that show forth your faith, that in the most difficult circumstances, our faith would be on display because your grace and mercy are there for us. And so, Lord, we come putting our trust in Jesus, our Savior. So we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen.